Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. I am definitely going to need a bigger podcast. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 106, Jaws. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi, hello and welcome to everyone listening, whether you are a returning listener or whether you're a brand new listener because you just really, really love Jaws. Basically, I'm so grateful that you're here and no matter how you're here, thank you for being here. And where podcasts are concerned, there are plenty of podcast fish in the sea, but I figured it was about time I tackled, excuse the pun, the biggest of cinematic fish. So Jaws has basically been a long time coming on this podcast, but before I do delve into the oceanic world of Jaws, I just wanted to say a massive huge thank you to everyone who listened to previous episodes and provided feedback on previous episodes as well. I'm talking about the Mitchells versus the Machines and Mad Max Fury Road. And no one came for me recommending the Mitchells versus the Machines in the Mad Max Fury Road episode, which I'm really happy about because <laughs> I was really worried that someone would come for me, but they didn't. So thank you for not coming for me. But before I start singing a jolly sea shanty, I'll be honest, I don't know any jolly sea shanties, so I'm not even going to try. We should probably listen to the trailer for Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change without passion and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> This 
is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week, and you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish, but I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out of the water now? This shark, swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. He's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! Watch the tail. Give him room. I can't. He's trying to run. Oh! I quit. I can't hold it. Hurry! None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. It's a hot summer on Amity Island, a small community whose main business is its beaches when new sheriff Martin Brody discovers the remains of a shark attack victim just before the 4th of July weekend, his first inclination is to close the beaches to swimmers. This doesn't sit well with Mayor Larry Vaughan and several of the local businessmen. Brody backs down to his regret as that weekend a young boy is killed by the predator. The dead boy's mother puts a bounty on the shark and Amity is soon swamped with amateur hunters and fishermen hoping to cash in on the reward. A local fisherman with much experience hunting sharks, Quint, offers to hunt down the creature for a hefty fee. Soon, Quint, Brody, and Matt Hooper from the Oceanographic Institute are at sea hunting the great white shark. As Brody succinctly surmises after their first encounter with the creature, they're going to need a bigger boat. Let's quickly go through the cast of this movie. Not a huge cast in this movie because, I mean, to be honest, there's only really three main cast members plus a shark. But we have Roy Scheider as Martin Brody, Robert Shaw as Quint, Richard Dreyfus as Matt Hooper, Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody, Murray Hamilton as Mayor Vaughan, Carl Gottlieb as Harry Meadows, and Jeffrey C. Kramer as Hendrix. The screenplay was by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. 
It was based on Jaws by Peter Benchley and it was directed by Steven Spielberg. And Jaws is one of those iconic movies that I think pretty much everyone knows about. The production of Jaws is well known for being troubled, problematic, and so I don't know if I can provide any information that you didn't know. However, I'm going to try all the same because Jaws is a fascinating movie. It's the first big summer blockbuster and certainly not what Steven Spielberg originally envisaged. I am historically not a fan of anything with teeth. I still struggle to watch Finding Nemo, in all honesty, because of Bruce. I don't like really teethy smiles. I think I've mentioned that on this podcast before. They are not my bag, baby. But I do have a bit of a love for shark movies. And while I can't remember the first time I watched Jaws, because I've watched it so many times over the years, I've watched bits and pieces here and there. I know I've definitely watched it in its entirety, but I can never remember the exact moment that I saw it. I can remember the first time I watched movies that were inspired by Jaws. So movies like Deep Blue Sea, Sharknado, Piranha, every other low-budget shark movie out there. And I really enjoy them, genuinely. And Jaws has always instilled a little bit of fear in me, which I guess, that's its kind of modus operandi, uh, it's supposed to instill fear in everyone who watches it. But... To start the history of Jaws, we need to go back to June 1916, when the US was affected by a series of shark attacks along the coast of New Jersey, where four people were killed and one injured by either a great white shark or a bull shark. The incidents occurred during a summer heatwave and a polio epidemic, which drove thousands of people to the Jersey shore between the 1st and the 12th of June that year. A wave of panic ensued along with shark hunters and the communities wanting to protect the economy of the summer seaside towns from the effect of a so-called killer shark. A lot of this obviously (laughs) makes a lot of sense when you think of Jaws. Several fishermen claim to have caught the Jersey man-eater with blue sharks, great white sharks and sandbar sharks all killed. On the 14th of July, Michael Schleiser, a taxidermist and lion tamer working for Barnum and Bailey's Circus, caught a seven and a half foot shark, opened it up and the ingested remains were later identified by scientists as human. And after this shark was killed, no further deaths were reported. So that was 1916. Let's fast forward in time to young Peter Benchley. So he spent time on fishing trips with his father Nathaniel, where he first dreamed of the idea for a story about a killer shark and what would happen if the shark would come to a place and not leave. That interest grew further when, in 1964, he found out about fisherman Frank Mundus, who harpooned a great white shark off the shore of Mantorp, New York, weighing over two kilograms. Reportedly, the character of Quint in Jaws would be based on Frank Mundus. Peter Benchley wanted to be a non-fiction writer, and while his agents scheduled regular meetings with publishing houses, no one was interested in any of his non-fiction ideas. Doubleday editor Thomas Congdon had lunch with Benchley, who, upon finding out about his killer shark idea, wanted to know more. Benchley sent Congdon a page, and Congdon requested a further 99 pages and paid Benchley $1,000. Benchley researched sharks and sourced information from Peter Matheson's Blue Meridian, Jacques Cousteau's The Shark, Splendid Savage of the Sea, Thomas B. Allen's Shadows in the Sea, and David H. Davis about sharks and shark attacks, as well as the 1971 documentary Blue Water, White Death, and taking inspiration from the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks. Originally, the book had the working titles of The Stillness in the Water and Leviathan Rising, as well as The Jaws of Death and The Jaws of Leviathan, but they were deemed pretentious and melodramatic. 
Approximately 125 titles were considered and 20 minutes before production of the book, they still didn't have a title. The only word that seemingly said anything about the book was the word Jaws. Even though Jaws meant nothing out of context, it was short, snappy, it would fit on a book jacket. And so they went with the word Jaws. The original hardback cover was designed by Paul Bacon with the shark head rising towards a swimming woman, but it's not the illustration that we know because despite the acceptance of the publisher Bantam, editor Oscar Dystel didn't like it and he commissioned Roger Castell to create a new cover for the paperback edition where the shark was made bigger, more ferocious, with a clear open mouth showing rows of teeth and closer to the swimmer. And this is the image that would be used by Universal for Jaws' iconic poster, I don't even need to tell you what this poster is because I know you can picture it in your head right now. Once Jaws was released in 1974, it became a huge success. Worldwide sales are estimated at 20 million copies, but before Jaws was even published, it came on the radars of Universal Pictures executives Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown. They heard about it, read it, and both agreed it would be an exciting prospect for a film adaptation, even if they were unsure how to actually accomplish it. Peter Bench's agent sold the film rights to Universal for $150,000 plus an extra $25,000 for Peter Benchley himself to write the screenplay. The novel was so new at the time that all this came before it became the huge bestseller that it did, meaning that the money changing hands was low compared to how huge the novel became in a few short months after this deal took place. Steven Spielberg wasn't the first choice for directorial duties. Zanuck and Brown considered veteran director John Sturgis before offering the job to Dick Richards, who was soon dropped after continually referring to the shark as a whale. 26-year-old Steven Spielberg had just directed his first feature film, The Sugarland Express, for Zanuck and Brown. Spielberg read Jaws and was immediately captivated by the project and signed on before The Sugarland Express was even released. Reportedly, the novel of Jaws made it onto California's bestseller list due to the hundreds of copies bought by Spielberg, Zanuck and Brown, which they forwarded to Universal opinion makers and executives during the pre-production of Jaws. And that's how it became a bestseller in California. But despite all this, despite all this excitement, Steven Spielberg started getting cold feet. And before production began, he wanted to move over to direct Lucky Lady for 20th Century Fox instead, realising that he was, let's just say, biting off more than he could chew with Jaws. But as he was contracted to Universal, his departure was denied, and instead, he was basically told that after making Jaws, he could literally make any project he wanted. Which, for a young director, was basically cha-ching-cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's make this shark movie. Steven Spielberg decided to discard much of Benchley's subplots and stick to the basic story of a shark terrorising a coastal town. When he accepted the directorial job, he told Zanuck he wanted to change the first two acts and write original screenplay material and be very faithful to the final third of the book, which was his favourite part of the novel, which was The Shark Hunt on Sea. But... As you'll recall, because I just said, Peter Benchley was paid $25,000 to write the screenplay. And this idea was mostly strategic on the part of Universal because they knew a Writers Guild strike was possible and because Benchley wasn't a member of the union, this meant a script could definitely be produced even if a strike went ahead. Peter Benchley would write three drafts before conceding defeat, but he did contribute to the mechanics of the script and the removal of the novel's adulterous affair between Ellen Brody and Matt Hooper at the request of Steven Spielberg to improve the camaraderie on the orca. 
Peter Benchley would be credited for the screenplay, as well as have a small cameo in the movie as a reporter. Spielberg still saw the characters in both Benchley's original novel and script as essentially unlikable, and he felt like the audience needed to be on the side of the humans and really not on the side of the shark, and approached screenwriters John Byram, William Link and Richard Levinson to rewrite the script. Howard Sackler offered to do an uncredited rewrite, to which Spielberg and the producers agreed, and he worked on the characterizations to make them more nuanced, interesting, and to give them interesting quirks, such as Brody's Fear of Water, having moved from New York to a coastal town. Spielberg also wanted to inject more humour into the script and contacted his friend Carl Gottlieb, a comedy writer and actor working on the sitcom The Odd Couple. Spielberg sent him the script, asked him, asked him what he would change, and also if he wanted a part in the movie. So he picked the part of Meadows and sent three pages of notes and revisions. And while the deal was for one week of revisions, Gottlieb ended up the primary screenwriter and rewrote the entire script in nine weeks during principal photography, often finishing the script to be shot the next day. And we're going to talk about the production of Jaws in a little bit, but it was a little bit haphazard, shall we say. Jaws was given a $3.5 million budget, 55 days to shoot, and principal photography was set to begin in May 1974. When it came to casting, the first actors cast were Lorraine Gary and Murray Hamilton as Ellen Brody and Mayor Vaughan, respectively. Stuntwoman turned actress Susan Backliney was cast as the first victim, Chrissy Watkins, mainly because she knew how to swim, she had extensive stunt training, and she was also willing to perform nude. For the role of Chief Brody, it was originally offered to Robert Duvall, but he was only interested in playing Quint. Charlton Heston was also interested, but Spielberg felt he was too big of a name and would take over the movie. After all, Brody was supposed to be a small-town police chief. Roy Scheider heard of the project at a party and eventually would win the role. Nine days before filming was due to start, neither Hooper nor Quint had been cast. Zanuck and Brown suggested Robert Shaw, who wasn't interested in the project but signed up at the behest of his wife and secretary and based his performance on fellow cast member and local fisherman Craig Kingsbury. It was George Lucas who suggested Richard Dreyfuss, whom he had directed in American Graffiti for the part of oceanographer Matt Hooper, after Spielberg considered John Voigt, Kevin Kline and Jeff Bridges, among many others. Dreyfus originally passed on the role, then reconsidered after his disappointment in his performance in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. Dreyfus called up Spielberg, accepted the role, basically on the proviso that he would not read the novel, because the character of Hooper would be substantially different in the movie than it is in the novel. Ironically, his performance in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz would become critically acclaimed, and as such, this would cause friction on set between Dreyfus and Shaw, and Shaw's binge drinking on set was widely publicised too, as well as his tax issues, which meant he often fled to Canada. Principal photography began on the 2nd of May 1974 in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, which was primarily chosen because the surrounding ocean has a sandy bottom that never drops below 35 feet for 12 miles out from shore. This was mainly to allow the mechanical sharks to be operated successfully. Jaws was the first major motion picture to be shot in the open ocean, and despite the relative short depth of the water, Spielberg still wanted it to look like they were far out to sea. After unsuccessfully proposing to train a real shark for the movie, which I don't think has ever been done before, ever, it was decided to utilise modern technology at the time to build three full-size pneumatically powered prop sharks, each of them 25 foot long, weighing hundreds of pounds, 
a full body prop called a sea sled with no belly, plus two platform sharks with either the right or left flank uncovered. The sharks were designed by art director Joe Alves and built at Rolly Harper's motion picture and equipment rental in Sun Valley, California. 40 effects technicians worked on the sharks, supervised by mechanical effects supervisor Bob Matty. He was the special effects director of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mary Poppins. His team would include up-and-coming effects artists like Roy Argabast, who would go on to work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Spielberg, Richie Helmer, who would go on to Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Michael Wood, who would oversee effects on Poltergeist. These sharks performed beautifully during testing, and once complete, they were trucked to Martha's Vineyard from California. They would arrive two months after shooting started. And despite the expertise that went into the building of these sharks, called Bruce, after Spielberg's lawyer Bruce Raymer, and the extensive testing on land of the performance and functionality, all of this changed as soon as they were immersed in salt water. But the sharks weren't the only trouble. Despite new equipment created by cinematographer Bill Butler to facilitate the sea shoot, including a rig to keep the camera stable and not be affected by the tide, cameras still got soaked, unwanted boats would come into frame, and the orca itself began to sink as soon as the actors went on it. The sharks, though, they caused the most trouble for this movie. They needed 14 operators to control all the moving parts, and the full-body prop was towed with a 300-foot line. They would capsize, they'd have to be recovered from the bottom of the ocean. This was obviously only 35 feet down, but still kind of difficult to retrieve a broken mechanical shark from the bottom of the ocean. They would slip off their platform, they'd get tangled in seaweed, the pneumatic hoses which controlled their movement would take on salt water and fail, the neoprene foam used for the shark's skin would soak up the seawater and bloat, despite it supposedly being non-absorbent, the frames of the sharks would struggle with the extra weight caused by this water absorption and fracture, and the mechanical parts would also corrode when coming into contact with the seawater. Basically, the sharks were not playing ball. So if they were lucky for every 12 hours of filming, they would get four hours of footage. Shooting out at sea caused more issues, so much so that Spielberg lamented why he just didn't shoot in a studio tank. The constant issues led to longer and longer delays, but there was a silver lining to this shark-shaped cloud. The delays meant that the script could be refined continuously by Carl Gottlieb, and the unreliable mechanical sharks meant Spielberg had to shoot around them. So in scenes which originally featured a close-up of the beast, such as the death of Chrissy Watkins, they instead showed Chrissy being dragged back and forth in the water as if she was being attacked from underneath. This was achieved by tying Susan Backlinney to cables and yanking them back and forth. Spielberg included lots of dorsal fin shots instead, or used other ways to explain where the shark was, such as the yellow floating barrels. And then you also have John Williams' iconic score, the two notes, the E and F, that add to the overall suspense and the fear of the unknown. Indeed, these issues arguably made Jaws even more iconic than had the sharks been functional. And essentially, Jaws would shape the horror genre, especially the creature feature genre, to imply rather than show, to generate the fear necessary to have the audiences on the edge of their seats. 
Spielberg even admitted that the movie evolved from Saturday matinee horror to more of an Alfred Hitchcock thriller, and obviously the similarities to Hitchcock don't end there, with the famous use of the dolly zoom, first shown in Hitchcock's Vertigo, a ridiculously easy, smart way to alter the perception of the audience by zooming a zoom lens while the camera dollies towards or away from the subject in such a way to keep the size of the subject the same in the frame. The effect was first created by Ermin Roberts, the second unit cameraman on Vertigo, and used by Bill Butler on Jaws to add to Brody's sense of dread when he realises young Alex Kintner is being attacked by a shark. The acting became more important than the presence of a shark on screen, the implied terror, which is even more impressive when most of the actors were continuously seasick. With Gottlieb almost decapitated by boat propellers and Dreyfus almost imprisoned in the shark cage, the shoot certainly sounds mostly terrifying. And speaking of the shark cage, real shark footage was used for that scene where they had a smaller cage along with the short actor to show the impression of the shark being huge in comparison. This footage was shot by Ron and Valerie Taylor off Dangerous Reef in South Australia and the footage they caught of the great white attacking the cage was so brilliant Spielberg wanted to use it immediately. It also essentially saved the life of Matt Hooper. As the cage was empty for the best looking shots and so the script was changed to have Hooper escape before the shark attacks the cage which saved the character's life and it allowed them to use the footage of the real shark who really did get caught in the cage lines and thrash about. The shark was unharmed but essentially Matt Hooper was supposed to die and because of this one shot he didn't die. Principal photography, which had been scheduled to take 55 days, ballooned, just like the shark's neoprene foam skin, to 159 days. Having a film 100 days over time budget and $5 million over cost budget meant that Spielberg assumed that his career was over. He wouldn't be present for the final shot filmed of the shark exploding, which would actually become a trademark of his going forward. Not being present, I mean, not exploding sharks. And while we can attribute the failure of the shark to be the saviour of Jaws, the actual saviour was the editor Verna Fields. She was the so-called mother cutter of Peter Bogdanovich and George Lucas and had close ties with both and also with Steven Spielberg. She edited the Sugarland Express. Fields' work on Jaws was celebrated as the clear evidence as to why editing is necessary and how an edit can change the picture. Fields would take terrifying moments and make them funny. She'd take funny moments and make them terrifying. Her work on Jaws has been studied for over 30 years, notably the fact that Fields managed to give the shark a personality before we even see it in the flesh. Verna Fields is the unsung hero of Jaws in many ways, and her work is still admired over 45 years later as some of the best in the business. But she wasn't just an editor, she was also a liaison between a stressed, overworked Spielberg and the studio when the budget began to overrun. Her reputation kept Jaws afloat, so to speak, and when she was editing the movie, often without any usable footage after a day's shoot, she edited on location and essentially used a home editing suite. Her decisions made Jaws unlike any other horror movie that came before or even after in many ways. Verna Fields would go on to win the Oscar for Best Editing for Jaws, and Jaws has been listed as the 8th best edited film of all time by the Motion Picture Editors Guild in 2012. Jaws would also be Fields' final editor credit, as Universal Pictures made her vice president for feature production. She was one of the first women to hold a position in the upper management of the industry, and used her role to try and address a heavily male-dominated movie industry. 
She worked in an executive creative consultancy role for Universal until her death in 1982, age 64. Verna Field's contribution to the film industry is huge, but her contribution to Jaws is unparalleled. And when the movie underwent test audience screenings, which were overwhelmingly positive, Spielberg decided to add one more jump scare and filmed a scene in Vernafield's pool, in Vernafield's pool, which they filled with milk and they covered with tarpaulin to recreate the murky Atlantic waters. It's the scene that always makes me jump the highest. When Hooper discovers Ben Gardner's body in the boat, Spielberg used $3,000 of his own money to shoot that scene using a life-size latex model of Craig Kingsbury's head. Like most movies, though, newsflash, most movies aren't scientifically accurate. There's always a little bit of artistic license that goes into movies, even true stories. But I think it's safe to say that the portrayal of sharks in Jaws isn't really scientifically accurate. While arguably Jaws did make people afraid to go into the water, it also highlighted the admiration of these magnificent animals and encouraged further research into their natural history to create a more nuanced view of these apex predators, lest we forget the orca is its own natural enemy. Sharks are not particularly fond of eating humans. We are not their natural prey. And ironically, the threat to sharks by humans is far greater than the threat to humans by sharks. For every human killed by a shark, humans kill approximately 2 million sharks. Peter Benchley would go on to regret demonising the Great White and became an avid conservationist working with environmental groups and scientists on behalf of sharks until his death in 2006. It is a fact that shark attacks do occur. There were 105 confirmed shark attacks on humans in 2019, as well as five deaths. But most of these can be attributed to a misunderstanding that the shark thought that the human was a seal or something like that. There are cases of provoked attacks where humans initiate interaction with the shark, which annoyed it to the extent that they chomp down. But statistically, you're more likely to drown in the sea than you are to be attacked by a shark in the sea. And if you are attacked, it's probably either going to be a great white shark, a tiger shark or a bull shark. They are generally the only three sharks that have ever attacked humans. But to be honest, most sharks stay away from humans. And statistically, you're more likely to die from a falling ladder than you are to be attacked by a shark. After filming Wrapped, the three mechanical sharks that caused all of this drama were destroyed. But there is a fourth shark. A fiberglass model, which is slightly smaller and scaled down, was created in 1976 and put on display at Universal Studios in Studio City, California, where it remained until 1990. It was then moved to the Adlan Brothers U-Pick Parts Junkyard in Sun Valley in 2002, and NPR reporter Corey Turner tracked it down for a segment in 2010. Not even Steven Spielberg knew of the fourth fiberglass shark, nor that it languished in a junkyard, although on display because Sam Adlan knew what he had and he displayed it proudly. In 2016, Nathan Adlan, the son of Sam Adlan, sold his father's business and donated the shark to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. The shark was in desperate need of repair and special effects and makeup artist Gren Nicotero volunteered to restore the fourth Bruce. His paint was peeled off, all the stress fractures were dremeled out and his jaws were fully recreated from blown up stills of the original. The teeth were created by the same original moulds and even their placement is completely faithful to the original shark models. Bruce number four was debuted to Joe Alves, the original designer, and Roy Arbogast, 
the FX artist responsible for the original shark's skin. Both were overcome with emotion, seeing Bruce live again. Bruce was moved to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, where he will be greeting visitors in a public area to entice them to buy a ticket. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures is due to open on the 30th of September 2021 and is located on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. So if you're in Los Angeles, late September, early October of this year, then why not go and see Bruce number four hanging up proudly in the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. And it is an astonishing piece of work that they did to actually completely restore that shark. It looks absolutely stunning. And if I remember, I'll pop some images on social media because it is an absolutely wonderful piece of work that they've done. And it's a shame that the original sharks no longer survive because it would be absolutely fascinating to see one of those three sharks. But no, they were completely destroyed. So Bruce number four is the only Bruce model that exists in the entire world. So if you're in Los Angeles, please go and visit him. Right, let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. And oh God, <laughs> Why? Why do I do this to myself? So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And this is really tricky. And this is, prob I always say this, I know I do. This is probably the worst obligatory Keanu reference yet. But Keanu Reeves narrated a 2015 biographical, biographical documentary called Mifuni, The Last Samurai, which also featured Steven Spielberg as himself. And genuinely, I couldn't think of any other way to link Keanu with Jaws. The guy was nine when this movie came out. So it's not like he was even working in Hollywood at the time. So that's it. <laughs> it's really bad. Keanu's not done any shark movies. He's not done any creature features. And he's not done anything on Martha's Vineyard that I'm aware of. So... That's, that's it. I know it's really bad. Uh, I feel such shame <laughs> for myself. Right. I've already mentioned the excellent John Williams score and Williams would partner with Spielberg for the majority of his movies going forward. Williams' famous theme was played by Tommy Johnson on the tuba to basically make it sound more threatening. There's also pieces of music in the score that Williams calls pirate music, which are decidedly a bit more upbeat because I think we forget sometimes that the Jaws score isn't just da-da, da-da. There is actually some really jolly little tunes in this movie that are actually quite uplifting. But yeah, obviously, the Jaws theme is the most well-known of all of the themes in Jaws. But have a listen to some of the more upbeat stuff, because it really is quite remarkable. Now, when it came to marketing Jaws, rather unprecedented for the time, Universal spent $1.8 million marketing Jaws including national TV advertising on primetime network TV. This was days before the movie opened in the US. At the same time, Zanuck, Brown and Benchley appeared on television and radio to promote the paperback of the novel and also the forthcoming film, utilising, of course, Roger Castell's iconic poster. Jaws was a merchandiser's dream. And we forget that before Jaws, there wasn't really anything in the way of tie-in merchandise. But then Jaws came along. And there were t-shirts, books, toys, costumes, games, posters, and of course, beach towels. And nowadays, you find that big movies like this will have a raft of merchandise. But Jaws changed the game for Hollywood in so many ways. When it was released on the 20th of June 1975, it opened to a record-breaking $7 million opening weekend. It recouped its production costs in the first 10 days. 
It took 78 days to overtake the previous highest grossing film, The Godfather. Jaws was the highest grossing movie of all time until Star Wars was released in 1977. It would be re-released in the US in 1976 and 1979 and would bring in $123.1 million in rentals alone. Worldwide, Jaws grossed $472 million, which, adjusted for inflation, is almost $2 billion in today's money, and it would garner the reputation of being the first big summer blockbuster. Critically, it was a darling. Everyone loved Jaws. It still sits at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. There are not many people out there who dislike this movie. They really appreciate the tension and the fear that this movie drums up. Awards season came round. It would win three Academy Awards, Best Film Editing, as I mentioned, for Werner Fields, Best Original Dramatic Score for John Williams and Best Sound, and be nominated for Best Picture, but would lose out to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. John Williams' score would also receive a Grammy, a BAFTA and a Golden Globe. And of course, we have to talk about sequels because Jaws spawned three sequels, Jaws 2 in 1978, Jaws 3, aka Jaws 3D, in 1983, and Jaws The Revenge in 1987. While all three sequels made a profit, none were, shall we say, as critically acclaimed as the original. Michael Caine would actually be very honest that he took the job on Jaws The Revenge for the money, and that it built him a terrific house, so good for him. <laughs> Jaws is also recognised as setting the template for creature features going forward, with movies like Orca, Mako, The Jaws of Death, Barracuda, Alligator and Piranha, all inspired by Jaws in some way. Spielberg would loud Piranha as the best of the Jaws ripoffs. Sharks are obviously now commonplace in cinema. Movies like Deep Blue Sea, The Meg, Open Water, 47 Metres Down, The Shallows and the many mockbusters like Sharknado, Mega Shark vs Giant Octopus, Sand Sharks, Ghost Shark, Shark Night 3D, among many, many others, <laughs> all still trying and mostly failing to emulate the greatness of Jaws. And I'll admit, I've seen Meg Shark versus Giant Octopus and Sand Sharks, and do you know what? I enjoy them. Like I say, I really do enjoy a good shark movie, and they are silly, stupid fun, but they are ridiculously enjoyable, so... <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I can't say I prefer them to Jaws, but, you know, Sand Sharks is... Fun. It is fun. I, I'm not even trying to sell it to you. <laughs> Sand Sharks is silly, ridiculous fun. When Pete eventually actually heard that the studio were arranging a deal for sequels, he replied, I don't care about sequels. Who will ever want to make a sequel to a movie about a fish? He subsequently relinquished the sequel rights to Jaws, aside for a one-time payment of $70,000 for each one, which I'm pretty certain he probably regretted. Jaws also inspired an ill-fated ride at Universal Studios Florida, which, like the titular shark it's based on, constantly broke down and closed for good in 2012. The one at Universal Studios Japan remains and is still operational, and an animatronic scene appears at the Universal Studios Hollywood Studio Tour as well. There's been Jaws the Musical, which premiered in 2004, Giant Killer Shark the Musical, which premiered in 2006, there have been three video games as well, 1987's Jaws, 2006's Jaws Unleashed, 2011's Jaws Ultimate Predator. I did actually, for research purposes, go on YouTube and watch videos of Jaws Unleashed, 
which came out on Xbox, PlayStation 2 and PC. And it is a completely ridiculous game because you play the shark and you basically just go around killing people. Uh, I mean, it's, it seems like completely brilliant. It didn't get particularly great ratings though, unfortunately. Right, let's go into social media thoughts. So I like to find out what people think about the movies that I'm featuring and I always put it out on social media. The first people I ask are always the patrons of this podcast. So we're going to start with Mike. And Mike says, My second favourite movie of all time. Jaws 3 was the first movie I had memories of seeing and it gave me nightmares for years. So I didn't see this one until later in life, but when I did, I was hooked, pun intended. The sense of dread begins from the moment Chrissy steps into the water and doesn't let up until, smile, you son of a, but it's never overwhelming. Plus, John Williams' score is my favourite of all he's ever done because it actually becomes the shark for all he sees the prop wasn't working. Just an utterly brilliant movie from a cinematic master. And Andy says, Jaws, in and of itself, is an amazing tense film. However, I am constantly in awe about how this movie came together, despite everything working against it. A film that was saved in post-production with clever editing and one of the greatest scores in film history. As someone who visits Cape Cod every summer, it's a hard one to convince my family to watch, but when I'm feeling brave, I'm always game for it. And an interesting side note that may or may not get mentioned prior, Brian Singer's production company took its name from a line in this movie, That's Some Bad Cat Harry. And Mike and Andy are actually both hosts of the same podcast. That podcast is Geek Salad, and they are basically a one-stop podcasting shop for all of your geeky needs. So news, reviews, trivia, anything to do with movies, music, TV, games. I'm actually going to be on their podcast this weekend. We're going to be talking about the movies of 1991, which I'm very excited about. Some great movies came out in 91, including three Keanu Reeves movies. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Point Break, and My Own Private Idaho came out in 1991. So I'm really excited to be talking about those. But absolutely, you should listen to Geek Salad. I will pop some links in the show notes. We have some more patron comments. We're going to start with Sam from the amazing podcast movie reviews in 20Qs. And Sam says, I don't really need to repeat myself. A true classic that holds up and seems even more relevant as time goes on. 13,000 out of 10,000. And that is another hyperbole sandwich from Sam, which is something that he sometimes does on his podcast. And if you like your movie podcast to ask questions about the movie, their movie reviews in 20Qs will be right up your alley. It's definitely right at mine. It's hilarious and weird and brilliant. And Sam is awesome. And by the way, Sam, I am more than happy for you to repeat yourself because your accent is lovely. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Kiwi accent. I just am. <laughs> so yes, please repeat yourself more often. Uh, we have Griff who says, The Godfather of Shark movies, it has never been bettered. It's a timeless masterpiece. The story behind the making of Jaws just makes it even better. And, I mean, that's the basis of this episode, Griff, so absolutely it does. And Griff, along with Paul, hosts the, uh, obviously, the Paul and Griff show. Uh, Their podcast is basically a bit like a podcast movie magazine because they have facts, they have trivia, and they have wit and humour as well. Make sure that you have a listen. Uh, link in the show notes for Paul and Griff Show. And also links in the show notes for movie reviews in 20Qs as well. I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, we also have a patron comment from Vern who says, One of the scariest movies for me. It's a tie between this and Irreversible as the only movies that made it difficult to fall asleep after I watched them for the first time. 
After an instant that involved Bruce at Universal, I had a hard time just seeing the box art. I mean, having heard stories about Universal Studios and what happened with the shark ride there, and obviously with my aversion to anything with teeth, especially anything with teeth that jumps out of the water, then I can absolutely 100% side with you on that. Um, and Cinema Recall, they basically love discussing iconic moments in film. And really, is there anything more iconic than Jaws? I don't think so. They've actually recently done a series on Mulholland Drive, which I've not seen but I've heard is just completely mind-bending. So basically, if you like a movie like Mulholland Drive, then go and listen to Cinema Recall and they will basically dissect the movie and hopefully make it make some sense. As always, links in the show notes for Cinema Recall. We also have Derek who says, This movie was a game changer, a smart, well-made blockbuster. It has the wonderful John Williams score, amazing acting and Spielberg being the best. I would argue Jaws is a major part of why so many people are obsessed with sharks. I can't say enough good things about Jaws. And neither can I. This episode is proof, I think, of that. And Derek, along with his amazing wife, Laurel, they host one of my favourite podcasts. It's called The Midnight Myth. They talk about history, mythology, philosophy, and how those topics relate to modern cinema. Every episode is fantastic. They've just released an episode on Loki, and it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I didn't think that I could learn any more about Loki as a character from the mythology or anything like that and I was just blown away by their episode on Loki. So please have a listen and obviously Baby Arthur as well. If you've seen pictures on Twitter, their Baby Arthur is the sweetest child. Uh, like a little golden cherub of a child and he's just lovely and occasionally you kind of hear him in the background of episodes and it's really cute. As always, links in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. Make sure you have a listen to them. And final patron comment is from Brendan, who says, A masterpiece is always magical, and an accidental one even more so. There are films Spielberg made that are arguably better than Jaws, not many, obviously, but this is the one that made Spielberg, that exposed and honed the filmmaking skills that would define his career. It's also a rip-roaring, sun-drenched horror film that holds up more than 40 years later, an endlessly entertaining cocktail of music and genre and craft and in walking performances. It's, well, it's Jaws. And Brendan does not have a podcast, so I can't plug anything for him, but he is an amazing person. As always, thank you to Brendan. Thank you to all of the patrons for providing comments. Always so much appreciated. And also in the comments, I'm going to be popping some links in the show notes to some episodes that some of the patron shows have done on Jaws. So there is an episode from Geek Salad in the show notes. There's also an episode from Movie Reviews in 20 Qs and also an episode from The Midnight Myth. So if you enjoy this episode on Jaws and you want some more, because obviously if you're a bit of a shark and you just want more podcasts on Jaws, then check out those three episodes. Links are in the show notes, basically in the little section where I put all the patron stuff. Right, we're going to move over to Twitter comments as well. So we have a few comments on Twitter to go through. So we're going to start with at at the flicks pod. This is Jeff who says, Hi Em, only just saw your Jaws comment in time. So Jaws came to Cardiff in January 1976. I arranged a school trip on its first Saturday for ten of us. The queue to get in was amazing. We queued three hours and in that time I even arranged a lunch rotor to make sure we were all fed. 
We get in after one of my school friends tried to make out he qualified for half price. People in South Wales know him as he is a big personality on BBC Radio Wales and Welsh TV, so no names. As for the film, a packed 3,000 seat cinema and everyone into the experience, jumping, laughing and enjoying one of my best cinema experiences ever. We have at Y2Craig who says, a genuine masterpiece with possibly the greatest score in film history. I'll never not enjoy watching this movie. At Film Rage YYC said, One of the most influential films ever made. It changed multiple generations' ideology to swimming in open water where sharks swim, quite possibly Spielberg's greatest film. At OSW Podcast One said, With all the failures during production, this should have never worked, but Spielberg and John Williams created something scarier than any shark on camera could ever be. At Retro underscore Tube said, For me, what makes this especially great is Spielberg's talent for all-American homespun chaos, the hyper-realistic domestic scenes and cosy summary amity. He doesn't leap straight into the hood within the first 20 minutes. Like the birds, he keeps it light at first so that when the horror happens, you really feel it. It's not a genre horror film or a monster movie. It's horror introducing into a sunny light comedy drama about a seaside resort. At Stuntgoat75 said, My favourite movie of all time. I never get bored of watching. Just a perfect film. Action, suspense, great cast. What else do you need? At Kirsty Bennett 8 said, Okay, I only saw this classic for the first time within the past couple of years and I thought I would be really scared. I did jump a lot, but it was really well done and I definitely enjoyed it. At Swayze of Arabia said, Jaws is such a perfect suspense movie. It builds tension by not showing the shark, although that's due to budget reasons. It has amazing music adding to the tension. Plus the actors do a good job of making the viewer believe there's tension. It's just so much fun. And at Round Here PC said, We covered Jaws in our latest episode as well. It is the shark movie that all of the shark movies are measured against. It still holds up as suspenseful and sincere and the chemistry between the main actors is such a pleasure to watch. And there's always something new to notice. And a huge thank you to everyone who provided comments on Twitter. There are no comments on Instagram or Facebook this time round. But again, I mean, that's pretty commonplace. Across the board, really, everyone loves Jaws, which completely expected because this is an iconic movie. A huge thank you to all the patrons and everyone on Twitter for providing feedback on Jaws. With influences ranging from Moby Dick to Creature from the Black Lagoon and Godzilla, among many others, Steven Spielberg made a movie that was destined to fail and yet ended up being a huge success just by changing the monster movie formula. But not just, but not just the monster movie formula. By creating a middle-class seaside town desperate to do anything to keep tourism alive and well, regardless of the impending doom, any social class conflicts are secondary to the primary cause of man versus beast, where man is inherently good and heroic and the beast is evil and must be stopped from doing what is honestly what animals do. Even the animosity between working class Quint and middle class Hooper is hinted at but ends with man coming together to fight the common foe, a foe that doesn't discriminate between class. It'll eat you regardless of how wealthy you are. There's a good reason why when coronavirus was devouring the human population, making millions sick, putting hundreds of thousands of people in hospital, killing the vulnerable and infirm, that the mayor in Jaws was used as an allegory to many government responses of, it's business as usual. But as people continue to swim, the shark continues to kill. Like Mayor Vaughan, who values the bottom line more than the community, he ignores the repeated advice of professionals. By downplaying the threat, you actually make the threat worse. 
Jaws may have started without a script, without a cast and without a shark, but 46 years later, it's still the benchmark for creature features and a watershed moment for blockbuster cinema, with a practical shark that still terrifies me, even if others not so much. It's easy to see why Jaws is a favourite of many a moviegoer, but when you realise what actually went on behind the scenes, it somehow endears you more to this cinematic treasure. Not only was it a fun movie with great characters, it genuinely made people afraid to go in the water. There aren't many movies that have that level of social and cultural legacy. Jaws gave us the summer blockbuster, the tentpole movie, the wide release, the heavy advertising and merchandise, as well as directly influencing a movie coming to this podcast in a couple of episodes' time. All I'm going to say is Jaws in space. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Jaws. If you love this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You could retweet, retweet or like posts on social media. That always helps with visibility. Or you could simply just tell your friends or a family member about this podcast, especially if they really, really love Jaws. And if you do like this episode on Jaws, you might also like the following episodes. So I'm going to start with recommending episode 41, which is Tremors. Tremors is obviously very inspired by Jaws. It has some wonderful creature effects. For a long time, the worms aren't even seen. They're just implied. And when you do finally see them, they are absolutely incredible creature effects. I highly recommend Tremors. Uh, It's obviously a very comedic movie. It has some great performances in it too, but really you're going to be there for the giant worms, aren't you? And that's not often, (laughs) it's not often what I will say on this podcast is be there for the giant worms. But Tremors is such a fun B-movie romp. It really does harken back to those old 50s B-movies. And it, like I say, it takes a lot of inspiration from Jaws. So if you do like Jaws, then please check out Tremors. The other movie that I'd like to recommend is also partially inspired by Jaws. And that is The Thing from 1982. Obviously, a John Carpenter movie, Kurt Russell. And a lot of the time, you don't actually see the thing. You don't know who the thing is. You don't know who's infected. It's so suspenseful and tense. It's a real masterclass in horror movie making from John Carpenter. So if you haven't seen The Thing, I would absolutely also recommend that one. And finally, I kind of felt like I had to recommend a Steven Spielberg movie. And I couldn't really recommend Hook because it's not really in keeping with this creature feature tradition. So I'm going to have to instead recommend episode 57, which is Jurassic Park, because that really is the seminal monster movie for me. It's the movie that I grew up watching and being terrified of. I definitely saw Jurassic Park before Jaws because Jurassic Park was one of the first one of my first cinematic moments and it's something that I've spoken a lot about a lot about on this podcast but yeah obviously it's another Steven Spielberg movie it's another classic you do see the monsters in Jurassic Park but the effects are so well done like with all of these movies with Tremors, The Thing, Jurassic Park and Jaws practical effects I know that people have a bit of an issue with the shark in Jaws how it doesn't look realistic I don't care I don't care that it doesn't look realistic. Still scares the bejesus out of me because it's a shark with teeth. So absolutely, Tremors, The Thing, Jurassic Park, 
check out those movies if you've not seen them. And once you have seen them, then please listen to my episodes on them. That would be awesome. As always, give me feedback on my recommendations. But to be honest, I think they're pretty solid recommendations. I'm not going to lie. But let me know if you think I missed anything. So the next episode is actually a little bit different. Obviously, going from Jaws, I mean, it would make sense to go for another high action, suspenseful thriller horror movie. But no, I've kind of gone with something that's really campy and a little bit weird and actually a lot better than I remembered because I rewatched it recently and I actually really enjoyed it. I don't think it completely works as a movie in its entirety, but I really appreciate the story behind it. And it's got one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's greatest performances, in my opinion, and that is Last Action Hero. I really like the concept of a movie in a movie. I love the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger sends himself up in this movie. And I'm a bit disappointed, actually, because this movie didn't do so well. And I want to look into why it didn't do so well. And let's see if we can generate a bit more love for Last Action Hero, because I really do think it's a movie that deserves a little bit more love. So next week, come back to Verbal Diorama and we're going to be talking about Last Action Hero. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do so. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. If you want to sign up and support the show, you can do so. VerbalDiorama.com slash Patreon. I'm always so grateful to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. Here's to swimming with bow-legged women. I also have a merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch, which is going to be updated at some point. If you want to email me, you can say hello, you can give me feedback, you can suggest things if you wish, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the contact form. And also I write for Film Stories. Film Stories is on a bit of a break at the moment as of recording, but check out the magazine. There's a new issue going to be dropping soon. And I also write articles online. I do a British podcast recommendation, which is really popular. And I'm always looking for new podcasts to feature. So if you know of a great British movie podcast, or if you are a great British movie podcast, then get in touch with me and let's get you featured in that. And finally, smile, you son of a bitch. Bye. Movie should know.